there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. So sang Frederick Faber in 1860. His song is based upon the Old Testament proclamation that God cares for the world with an everlasting love. While the narrative that we read about in the Bible from Abraham to Malachi centers on Israel, there are many hints along the way that Israel is just one play in God's bigger game. His project is to save the world. And that theme comes to a climax in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, at the end of the Old Testament, with the announcement that the time will come when God's name will be great among the nations and all the nations will worship God. And when the prophets and the psalmists in the Old Testament speak about the nations, they mean all the non-Jewish people of the world. The nations is the rest of them. In the New Testament, that idea suddenly erupts in the concept of a universal restoration. Now, I'm not making this up. The New Testament actually teaches that at the end of this earthly age, there will be a universal restoration, a final fix-up of everything, a repair job <coughs> that will mend all the brokenness of this world. You haven't heard that in church? Probably not. And I suggest that's because evangelical preachers are so preoccupied. Oh, I'm not talking about Pastor Jason or Pastor Garth or about former Pastor Gary. But many evangelicals are so preoccupied with the small details of the future, like the rapture and the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation and the times of it all and the, what the thousand years mean and so on, that they miss the big picture. Further, I found in my work, through my preaching and my writing, that many evangelicals have their heads so full of the dark, bad news that they don't know where the good news fits in. So they just dismiss it. Or they preach, or they criticize me for being so hopeful. My message today will be a bit like a Bible study class. I will read a good bit of scripture, and I do that, so that even if you can't agree with me, or don't want to agree with me, or protest that you've never heard such stuff in church before, and so you don't, you don't need to agree with it. You will, however, have to agree that the New Testament does give us some pretty nice things to think about. I hope you'll think about them. However, oh, and that message, by the way, comes to a conclusion in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And as you're listening there, I invite you to pull out your Bible and open it there. I'll soon be there. Revelation 21 and 22. First, I start with Acts 3, verse 21. <coughs> the apostle is preaching in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus left. They have crucified him. And so he's gone. And Peter preaches and says, Jesus will now stay in heaven. Chapter 3, verse 21. He must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Two words, that's all, universal restoration. All of our Bibles use it, some with slightly different terms. In the Greek, my Greek New Testament, it's just one word, apokatastasis. I like that word. It rolls nicely off my tongue, apokatastasis. And I don't know if I've ever heard a preacher 
explain that and preach on that, although I have books that devote a whole chapter to the apocatastasis. Peter said, the idea comes from the prophets of the Old Testament, and I will share now where that idea takes us in the New Testament. You know, we should have thought of that, of the big restoration, because most of us have learned to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is to heaven. Do you ever think of what you are praying for unwittingly? You are praying that this earth will be changed so that earth becomes like heaven. That's what we're talking about. That's what you've been praying for. Jesus' miracles point in that direction too. Jesus went around fixing things up. You've noticed that. We call it doing miracles. Every miracle is a sign of how God feels about our earthly problems. He's against them. He's not for sickness and trouble and death. He's for health and joy and wellness. Every miracle is evidence of God's compassion. Jesus helped all kinds of people with all kinds of problems. And every miracle is a promise of the future. God is actually capable of fixing up the problems that we have come to think of as inevitable. Bad storms and no food in the cupboards and crippled legs and blind eyes and deaf ears and all kinds of demon problems and strange, mysterious pandemics that spoil our peace of mind and our well-being all over the world. As I was preparing to share this message, I had before me about a dozen verses from the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. I can't use all of them. Let me just mention about four or so. Romans chapter 8, the apostle is writing, and in verse 19 and on, he points out that all creation is waiting for liberation from its bondage to futility. He kind of personalizes creation. He says, creation is just waiting for a time when it will be set free so it, so it can be the kind of creation it should be. 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle writes about Christ who is now ruling. He, the kingdom is here. Christ is ruling in the kingdom, and he must continue to rule until every evil, including death, is overcome and destroyed. And then everything will be subject to God, and God will be all in all. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, that idea is summed up in one sentence. The time will come when all matters on earth and heaven will be gathered up in Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, the thought is this. The time is coming when every knee will bend and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 2 Peter 3. Here's a passage. Lots of fire in it. I'm old enough to remember when the bombs were dropped on those Japanese cities. I remember how the preachers used that. And they said, there is a picture. That's what happened there is what will happen to this world one of these years. It will all blow up like a big atomic blast. Peter is not speaking of literal fire, fire that destroys. Because metaphorical fire does not leave smoke and ashes in a nuclear haze. It opens things up and reveals things. That's what the best translations have it. And shows what's wrong with the old world. And the result is not chaos and destruction. The result is a new world in which, in which righteousness is at home. That's another way of saying 
a new world in which everything will be right. And this promise of a new world in which everything is right is summed up in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, which is where I go now. First, I must say a few things about the book of Revelation because I have found in my work that for many things, the book of Revelation is a total mystery. For some, it's a total frustration. I've talked to people who say they just stopped reading Revelation because it's too discouraging, too depressing. They can't stand it. Okay, a few things to remember. We must keep in mind as we read Revelation that it is written to encourage and strengthen the church in the early years of the church in the Roman Empire. We must keep this in mind. My first teachers taught us that everything in Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 22 is in the future. We will not, will not see any of that. We'll all be raptured before it all happens. It was written for the churches of Asia Minor, Western Asia Minor, today that's Western Turkey, and was written to help them endure the persecutions they were enduring in the Roman Empire, 95 AD, when Domitian, who may have been the worst emperor that Rome ever had, was ruling the empire. We must try to understand Revelation the way they would have understood it. And the message is presented mostly in figurative language, the kind of metaphorical speech that they knew from their prophets. My first teachers taught me that we must try to interpret the Bible literally as much as possible, but I soon got into bad trouble with that advice. Fortunately, I had some books that taught us that figurative stuff must always be interpreted figuratively. If we don't, then our preaching and teaching will produce chaos. And nowhere is that warning more important than when we, than when we read Revelation, which calls for a good bit of humility. We can never be quite sure that we are interpreting correctly. What I present today is what I think is probably the right way to understand divisions. The writer in Revelation is the Apostle John. That's how I treat him in my teaching. I have decided that it's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, although most scholars think otherwise. Uh, but I see so many connections, verbal, literary connections between the two books that I think it's very likely it was the same John. And um, it consists, oh, I should mention this. Uh, my wife and I have been on the island of Patmos where John was, and they took us to the cave where they say he was locked up. That cave is about the size of uh, the kitchen in our condo. And there's a square hole cut in one side of the wall, and I stood there, ducked down like this, and looked out, and all I saw looking out through that hole was the blue Mediterranean. And I stood there for a minute, and I imagined to myself, this is where John stood, night after night, staring out into the darkness as the visions floated by, one after the next, after the next. And I suppose it took quite a few days. Over the next day, he wrote the visions down, and then there were more visions. So, so he saw them. These are not descriptions of actual events in, on earth. These are pictures, visionary pictures, metaphorical pictures. The Bible has a lot of metaphorical speech. Revelation has metaphorical pictures. Some of them are massively exaggerated for effect, and there's a lot of repetition. Six times the story moves along until it seems to come to the end, then starts all over again. 
One of my commentaries says there are seven such ends, but I think he's saying that just to make it a perfect number, and I don't see it. And um, 36 times John says, and I saw. Further, there's a lot of noise too, lots of sound. It's a multimedia show that he sees there at night happening over the Mediterranean Sea. 27 times he says, I heard. There are big shouts and angels speak and there's lots of praise music. And much of the stuff is terribly, horribly bad. Incredible. Wars and suffering and starvation and natural catastrophes, things like whole mountains flaming up into fire and falling into the ocean and turning all the ocean water into blood and so on. And at the end, the people don't repent. They curse God. The Roman Empire gets a lot of attention. It's represented first as a beast who's a brutal, dominating warrior. And then it's presented as a lying propagandist, deceitful and tricky. Uh, he's also called the false prophet. <clears throat> and then Rome is presented as a beautiful prostitute riding a red horse and seducing all the kings of the earth. And then finally in chapter 18, Rome is demolished. And all the people that have loved Rome and that have done business with Rome and have gotten rich through uh, colluding with Rome stand there and wring ring their hands in despair. There are three visions of heaven. Chapter 4, chapter 7, and chapter 14. You see, while the evil and the horror is pictured as rolling all over the earth, God is on the throne. And the saints in white robes are already gathering there in front of that throne. <clears throat> and they're praising God for their salvation. And they're powerful songs of victory. Uh, let me read a few. Um, I go first of all to chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and the loud voices said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and forever. A few chapters further along, in chapter 15. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the servant of God, and the song is this. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, and your judgments have been revealed. Do you know what's happening here? Here, the promise that we saw mentioned here and there throughout the Old Testament comes true. It's not all going to hell. And that leads us now to chapter 21. So if you'll open your Bibles there, I'll take you through on a walk through chapters 21 and 22. The glorious future world of humankind, the grand goal that God had in mind in, when he created in Genesis chapter 1, the universal restoration that Peter promised in Jerusalem is finally before us in chapters 21 and 22. And I think the best way to go is to just walk through it with a minimum of explanation. I promise you, I will not try to explain everything. I assure you that if you listen carefully, you will have some big questions in your mind when I am done that you will need to ponder about. 
and I'm giving you some stuff to use in your pondering, okay? Chapter 21, verse 1. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The visions of chapters 4 to 20 have given us an overview of the history of humankind. What God does, what the devil does, what the Roman Empire does, and what evil people do, and how God's people suffer through it all. And now we look at a picture of the future. Now, I realize there are some scholars who think otherwise. One of those who I've listened to is Professor Nelson Craybill of the seminary in Elkhart, Indiana. <clears throat> we had him at SBC a few years ago, and since I was teaching a course in Revelation exactly at the time, I listened very carefully to what he ta taught, and he says chapter 21 is not the future at all. That is just another metaphorical picture of how the church exists in this time and in this space right now. I differ from him, uh, respectfully. Most of the commentaries I have used differ from him too. This, I believe, is the eternal spiritual dimension, which is the home of the triune God, of the angels, and of the deceased people of God. And that will now be integrated with this judged and purified and renewed earth. Or as Nicholas Berdeyev, a very wise Russian philosopher and a strong Orthodox evangelical believer, once put it, the celestial will be fused with the terrestrial, with this world then taking on the characteristics of heaven. Notice how that agrees with the prayer of Jesus. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. These first two verses used to confuse me awfully because of the word heaven, until I found out that the, re the reason it's confusing is because the New Testament has just one word, uranus. And with that one word, they describe the sky. When we look up and see the clouds, we're looking at the uranus. And when they wanted to talk about the eternal dimension in which God is at home, that also was uranus. Here is a new heaven and a new earth. God's realm doesn't need to be renewed. This speaks of this earth and this sky. It's it will have become new. And just as Jesus vanished into the sky, so the holy city will come down out of the sky, down to this earth. That's how I understand it. What the holy city is, we will, fi we will find when we come to verse 9. And now, verse 3 to verse 7. This may be the most beautiful, the most encouraging, and the most uplifting passage in all of the Bible for people who are troubled and who are struggling and who are stressed out and discouraged and depressed by how everything is going. Listen to this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, For these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer, and some Bibles say those who overcome, that's good too. 
Those who overcome will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. I think the key line here is, see, I am making all things new. Another Mennonite professor, uh, Ted Grimswood, reminds us in one of his books that God is not making all new things. He is making all things new. In other words, this is renewal work. This is restoration work. God doesn't discard his first work of creation, but rejects, this is my interpretation, he rejects what the devil's evil forces and evil people have made of it and restores God's order on everything. And then I'm at verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The, it, the bride has already been introduced in verse 2. Here's, here the bride comes again. And I suggest that every reader in 90, every Christian reader in 95 AD would have understood. The bride, who is the wife of the Lamb, is Jesus Christ. Pardon me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I got my, my concepts mixed up there. The bride, who is the wife of the Lamb, the Lamb is Jesus Christ. And the bride is the church. This is a a uh, metaphorical picture of the church in eternity um, coming down to this earth. So forget all the sermons, the weird sermons and strange sermons you've heard about how this city is going to work 1,500 miles this way and 1,500 miles that way and so on and with streets all made of gold and wondering where the gold comes from and how the plumbing system will work in a city like that and where are the oysters that produce eight-foot big pearls for the gates and all that stuff. Forget it. This is not describing a place. This is describing, not describing where the church will live. This is describing the church, the church in eternity. This is the ultimate goal of that ragtag bunch of losers who were being fed to the lions in Rome every weekend. This provides us hope. When we are abused by the misbehavior of nature, the droughts and the floods, and the earthquakes and the tsunamis, and the volcanic eruptions, and the lightning strikes, and the worldwide pandemics, like the bubonic plagues of the Middle Ages, or the Spanish flu of 1918, or the epidemic that we are dealing with right now. And this provides hope for all the persecuted believers in China, or South Sudan, or Korea, and so on. And now, I'm at verse 22. I skip a passage. Verse 22. Here's another beautiful descriptive promise. The first promise was for us personally. How it will be for us personally. No more death, no more tears, no more sigh, no more crying. Now comes a picture of how the church of Jesus Christ will function in eternity. I read, starting at verse 22. I saw no temple in this city. And remember, according to the angel's definition or description, the city is the church of Jesus Christ. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is the light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And some Bibles say, and his servants will serve him. That's good too. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and forever. Let me quickly review some of the details. No temple there, because temples in the past were meant to remind people of the invisible God or the unknown God. God will be visible and known to us directly there. The city or the church is only for those who, are belong, who belong to the Lamb. Only those. And the 12 massive gates, four in e three in each direction, will stand there open all day. And there will be no night, which means that the gates just are open. And I think it's a symbol of the welcoming nature of the church in eternity. And the kings of the earth and the nations will stream into it, which means that they must now be listed in the Lamb's book of life. Otherwise, they could not come in. So here we finally see the persistent theme of the Old Testament showing up in reality. And in the city is the river of life, which likely means they have the life that is eternal. And then there's a tree of life that will provide healing for the nations that come in. So what do I conclude? To wrap it up, there will not be a massive massacre of all ungodly people, but a gracious healing opportunity for those who are willing to identify with a lamb. And then we have the conclusion, which is a mixture. Most commentaries sort of skim over it, and most preachers omit it. But we have a few beautiful truths, concluding truths, in these closing comments. First is verse 11. I read it. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What does this mean here? I think it means that not even in eternity will God take away from humans the gift of freedom. Not even there will God enforce his will and say, you must come to heaven. No, people, still, people have been given the sacred gift of free will that is God's will for humans he, whom he made, and they have it even there. Evil people retain the freedom to be evil, and those who want to be holy and righteous so they fit into the church have the freedom to be holy and righteous. Everything has become new, but people still have the freedom to choose their loyalties. Then verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone 
who loves and practices falsehood. In Revelation, the white robes or the washed robes refer to those people who have received forgiveness through their faith in Jesus Christ. And here's a final reminder. Only those with clean robes can enter the city, or in other words, the church in eternity. And that then comes a final warning, and this warning is a word that is very relevant for us right now in our times, because we have teachers and preachers around us who say that God will eventually annihilate all unbelievers, or they say he will exterminate them. Or as a local pastor wrote recently uh, in his online sermon, God will execute all unbelievers when they reach eternity. Here I read, they're still there. They're still there. After all is said and done, they are still ungodly ones who are still living in their sins and still clinging to their beloved lies. But they will be outside. And then a picture comes to my mind, which I've read recently in the last year or so. I don't know where I read it. I don't know who put it together. It sounds like something C.S. Lewis might have written. Anyway, the writer says, unbelievers in eternity will not be banging on the locked doors of heaven, screaming to be let in. No, they will have locked themselves out and will be congratulating themselves on actually having managed to keep God out of their lives. What about that? Anyway, after all is said and done, there will still be ungodly ones who are still living in their sins and still clinging to their beloved lies. But they will be outside. That's the last word in the Bible about those people. And that's where I leave them, outside. And now what's left? There seems to be a gap, isn't there? between the here and now in which we live and the future that is pictured here. We have not yet heard anything <clears throat> about the coming of Jesus. Did you notice that? There are no visions of the coming of Jesus in Revelation. <clears throat> but he is coming. No, there are no visions showing that, but there are promises, three promises at the end. Here they are. Verse 7. See, I am coming soon. And verse 12, see, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. And then at the end, once more, third time, verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And if that word soon confuses you or bothers you, let me just add something which I found in my lexicons, which is that the word tahu in Greek means soon. That's what it means. But the Greek concept tahu also has with it the connotation of certainty. And I suggest we should think of that. The coming of Jesus is definite. It's certain. It will come. That's the, thr that's the thrust of the word soon here. These are the clearest lines, the most easily understood in all of Revelation. The biblical story of God and humankind starts with a word from God. Let there be light. And it closes off with a word from the Lord Jesus. Surely I am coming soon. And where, that, where does that leave us? Where are we? We are waiting. Waiting. But by the grace of God, we have been provided with an incredible picture of hope here at the end of this book of Holy Scriptures. And the hope, I hope, 
will hopefully sustain us as we keep on waiting in hope. I think we should pray now. Our Father, we turn to you now in prayer. We are amazed when we think of what you have planned for us and for our world. And maybe I should today just include all fathers in my closing prayer. We fathers pray that the people in our homes, the people in our family circles, the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren will all understand that to live life well, they need to attach themselves to Jesus Christ because then they can share with us in this wonderful hope that we have. Thank you for that hope, we say, in Jesus' name. Amen.